welcome to the National Botanic Gardens at Glasnevin and this audio-guided tour to some of the fascinating and unusual plants and stories in the gardens. I'm Mary Mulvihill from Ingenious Ireland and with the director of the gardens, Matthew Jebb, it's our pleasure to guide you on this tour. We have several audio-guided walks at Glasnevin, each one a different colour. If you don't already have an information leaflet for your tour, you can get one at the visitor centre. The tours last about 40 minutes to an hour and they all start just inside the main entrance gates. From there, you simply follow the coloured sign for your tour. Then play the appropriate audio track when you get to the next point of interest. At the end of each track, you'll hear this. And that's the signal to pause your player, move to the next location, and then press play to resume the story. Now, if you're ready, our tour starts just inside the main entrance gate. Join us there to hear about how the gardens began over 200 years ago. Yellow One, the gardens at Glasnevin. There has been a garden at Glasnevin since at least the 1720s. Before the Botanic Gardens were established in 1795, there was a small Georgian estate and residence here. That Georgian villa home is now the official residence for the director of the Botanic Gardens. And the oldest plants in the garden were part of that original Georgian estate, an avenue of yew trees planted in about 1730. And we learn more about the house and those yew trees later in this yellow tour. These days, most people think of botanic gardens as somewhere pleasant to come for a stroll. But botanic gardens are also scientific and educational institutions. And this one has its roots in medicine and farming, as Matthew Jebb explains. Botanic gardens have their origins in the physic gardens of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. The word physic is the same as in physician, and physic gardens were medicinal herb gardens, with plants grown for their medical properties. You could say that they were the pharmacy shops of their day. The very first physic garden was opened in 1543 at Pisa University in Italy. Ireland got its first botanic gardens 150 years later, when the anatomy school at Trinity College Dublin opened one in 1687. By the 1780s, Trinity's physic garden had been abandoned, so one man began campaigning for a proper Irish botanic gardens. Dr Walter Wade was a physician and the leading Irish botanist of the day. His friend and patron was the Speaker of the Irish Parliament, John Foster, and thanks to Foster, the Irish Parliament provided the necessary funds. The job of establishing the gardens was given to the Royal Dublin Society, or the RDS, as it's still popularly known. They bought an estate in Glasnevin village and work began. Walter Wade became the first director and in 1800 the gates opened to the public for the very first time, but they closed a year later. 
There were complaints about idle persons who had caused much mischief, and nursemaids accompanying children used language that caused the poor gardeners to blush. After that, people who were not members of the Dublin Society had to be accompanied by the head gardener. Today we're delighted to welcome idle persons and children too. The RDS members then were well-to-do landowners and their priority was farming. So the gardens were established to promote scientific knowledge in the various branches of agriculture. And in the early years, there were hay meadows here and even animals grazing. Today, there is still a horticultural college here. It's run by the agriculture and food agency Chagask. But the focus now at Glasnevin is on much more than farming. From the very beginning, botanic gardens have combined many roles. At their heart, they've always been about horticulture and demonstration. But gradually, the roles of science, training and education have grown in the past two centuries. Today, plant species around the world face an uncertain future with the threats of habitat destruction, over-exploitation and unprecedented climate change. Our most recent activities include a greater role in the conservation of our own flora, as well as of plants from around the world. In 1878, the state took over the gardens, and they've been a public garden ever since. They've expanded to cover nearly 20 hectares, and over 17,000 different species and cultivars grow here. There are also many thousands of dried and pressed plants in the herbarium, which we'll hear about later in this tour. Today, Glasnevin is internationally important, and we can be proud of its achievements. It's also a lovely place to visit. The founders would surely have been pleased. Yellow 2, a Georgian home. This pleasant Georgian villa is the director's residence. One of the conditions of becoming director at Glasnevin is you get to live on the job. And so for over 200 years this has been home to the dozen or so men who have been director here, one of whom was even born in this house. Of all the directors, the most important were the three men who steered the gardens from the 1830s until 1922. These were Ninian Niven, the foremost garden designer of 19th century Ireland, and a father and son, David Moore and Frederick Moore, who secured Glasnevin's international reputation. And between them, this father and son steered the gardens for over 80 years. The first of our three is Ninian Niven, a Scotsman who was born in 1799 and came to Dublin to work as a head gardener in the Phoenix Park. Niven took over at Glasnevin in 1834 and was director for just four years, yet he established the shape of the gardens you now see with its paths and other features, including the lovely chain tent that we visit on our Red Tour. Some of Niven's proposals were a bit too radical for the society, however, and he left in 1838 to start his own garden design business. He went on to become the greatest landscape architect in Victorian Ireland, with a distinctive style that blended formal French design with the more natural English landscape style. Niven designed gardens for many of the great Irish houses, including Kilkenny Castle and numerous Dublin estates, as well as the Royal Marine Hotel in Dunleary and several public parks, amongst them Dublin's Ivy Gardens off Harcourt Street. 
Next into the director's house was another Scotsman, David Moore, and he really put Glasnevin on the international botanical map. He was the first person to grow orchids from seed to flowering stage here in the 1840s, as you will hear on the Green Tour. He dramatically increased the collections here, adding hundreds of exotic new species from around the world. He gave many of these plants to estate owners around the country to see how they would grow in other conditions, and in this way he helped to develop the gardens at Photo House in County Cork and Kilmacurra in County Wicklow, which is now Glasnevin's satellite garden. Perhaps most importantly, David Moore persuaded the Royal Dublin Society to build several big new glass houses here at Glasnevin so that he would have somewhere to grow and display his exotic species. And he engaged Richard Turner to design and build the famous curvilinear range, which we'll tell you about shortly. Moore was also the first person to spot potato blight in Ireland on crops growing here in August 1845. He spent years looking for a way to control blight and came tantalisingly close to a solution. When David Moore died in 1879, he was succeeded by his 22-year-old son, Frederick, who had been born here in 1857. Many people criticised the appointment of such a young man, but Frederick Moore proved them wrong. He went on to establish Glasnevin as one of the great gardens of the world, with an orchid collection considered to be the greatest in its day. In due course, he was knighted for his services to botany and horticulture. It's a real privilege to follow in their footsteps today and live in one of the best houses in North Dublin. Yellow 3, Thomas Moore's Rose. Tis the last rose of summer, left blooming alone. All her lovely companions are faded and gone. This rose is a cutting from the original that inspired Thomas Moore's famous song. He wrote the poem in 1805 while he was visiting Jenkinstown House in County Kilkenny. Even in winter you can often find some late pink flowers on this shrub. It's a welcome dash of summer colour in the dead end of the year. Modern roses can produce blooms for month after month and it's something we take for granted now. But in 1805 it was relatively new. The trait was introduced to European roses in the late 1790s by crossing them with new Chinese varieties brought from the Orient. And so we can say, without a doubt, that this rose must carry some Chinese genes. We'll tell you more about the fascinating story of roses on our Red Walk when we reach the Rose Garden, but here we want to focus on Thomas Moore's story and this lyrical song that we'll play for you in a minute. Even if you've never heard of Thomas Moore, you will know his songs. Songs like The Minstrel Boy, or She is Far from the Land, or Believe Me of All Those Endearing Young Charms, a song so well-known it even featured regularly in Bugs Bunny cartoons. Thomas Moore was a poet and writer, a singer and an entertainer, and he was a colourful international celebrity and well-known on the London social scene. He has been dubbed the Bard of Aaron, and if Scotland has Robert Burns as its national poet, then Ireland has Thomas Moore. 
He was born in Dublin in 1779, and after studying classics at Trinity College Dublin, he moved to London for a career in law. But he quickly became a successful writer, and he made England his home, although he often returned to Ireland. Today we remember him for his melodies, haunting songs of love and loss which he wrote and set to traditional Irish airs. Moore published his melodies in several collections starting in 1808, and they were hugely successful. The Last Rose of Summer sold over one and a half million copies in the US alone. Jenkins House, where Moore was inspired to write the poem, is gone, but the grounds are now owned and managed for the state by the Forestry Commission, Quilche. The park is about 10 kilometres north of Kilkenny City, and it's a pleasant place for a ramble. And now, here is that very song. You can read the lyrics and sheet music on the display here, and admire the rose of it is in bloom and follow the song. It's sung here by soprano Aoife O'Sullivan with Mairead Hurley on piano and recorded in Dublin during the Thomas Moore Festival in 2008. Oh, it's kind to me. 
Yellow 5, an architectural treasure. This beautiful glasshouse is one of Ireland's architectural treasures. It's also one of the most important 19th century glasshouses in Europe and it was faithfully restored to its original splendour in 1995 for the garden's 200th anniversary. It's called the Curvy Linear Range because it has both curved and linear components, and it's the work of a Dublin man, Richard Turner, who was one of the great iron masters of his day. Turner also designed glasshouses for the Botanic Gardens in Belfast and at Kew in London, but this one in Glasnevin is his finest work. Turner pushed his materials to the very limit and his wrought iron work was much thinner and lighter than his contemporaries and so his glass houses could be taller and let in more light than before. They're a beautiful mix of form, function and ornamentation. And if you step back and take a look, you'll see how elegant and modern they are even to our 21st century eye. The glasshouses were built in three phases over a period of about 25 years, from 1843 to 1868. Thousands of prefabricated pieces went into the structure, and all of the pieces would have been made off-site and then brought here and assembled. It was all very advanced for its time, like some great jigsaw or Lego kit. The upper panes of glass are curved, and each one was moulded to the correct curvature for its position in the building. Most of the ironwork that you see is wrought iron, and that was crucial to Turner's success, because wrought iron is very good under both compression and tension, 
Other glasshouse designers used cast iron, but that can crack under tension. This building is 12 metres tall at its highest point, and it's over 100 metres long, and it has nearly 8,500 panes of glass. It dates from the golden age of glasshouses in the middle of the 19th century. By then, glassmaking techniques had improved significantly, and you could get relatively big panes of glass, and that meant you could build bigger glass houses. And meanwhile, the great voyages of discovery were returning with exotic plants, and people wanted somewhere to grow and display them. And Richard Turner was delighted to help. He was born in Dublin in the rebellious year of 1798, and he came from a family of iron workers. His father and grandfather before him had worked in the foundry business. Turner had his first workshop on St. Stephen's Green between Grafton Street and Dawson Street, but in 1834 he opened his new Hammersmith factory at Balls Bridge, south of the city, on what would later become the site for the veterinary college, and he had a house there for himself and houses for his workers. But Turner didn't just make glass houses, he also made mundane items like bathtubs and railings and bedsteads, and he exported these around the world. His designs were very advanced for the time, and not everybody liked them. In fact, his design for London's Crystal Palace in 1851 was turned down because people thought it just wouldn't stand up. As it happened, there were problems with this Glasnevin building that emerged over the next century. First, the ironwork corroded in the very humid tropical conditions here. Second, Turner's design couldn't accommodate the thermal expansion that happened on hot days over this very long 100 metre long building. And third, the east and west wings were never stabilised when they were doubled in size in the 1860s and over the next 100 years they literally started to break apart so that by the time the restoration started the building was ready to collapse and panes of glass were cracking and had to be replaced nearly every day. The restoration under the OPW architect Kieran O'Connor was very faithful to the original. Every component was lovingly and painstakingly identified and tagged and dismantled and cleaned and then reinstated. 87% of the metalwork that you see here is original and the rest is all Turner metalwork that was salvaged from Kew when they replaced their Turner glasshouse with a stainless steel replica. Dublin's was a high-tech project and it used precision engineering. And they even recreated the original colour that Turner chose. It's a rich cream colour and it's now called Turner White. The restoration won several international awards and it's a fine masterpiece in Richard Turner's hometown. Yellow Six, Addison's Walk This beautiful avenue of yew trees is the most atmospheric corner of Glasnevin and these venerable trees are also the oldest plants in the gardens nearly 300 years old what history they must have seen what stories they could tell. They were planted by an English poet, Thomas de Kell, and in memory of another English writer, 
Joseph Addison, and so this is sometimes called Addison's Walk. Take a minute now to drink in the atmosphere of this lovely evergreen avenue and let me tell you the story. Thomas Tickell was a minor English poet and a man of letters who was born in 1685 near Carlisle. He was a great friend and later official undersecretary to another English writer, Joseph Addison. Addison was the Earl of Warwick, a noted Whig politician, and one of the founders of the original Spectator magazine, among other claims to fame. In 1708, when the Whig party was in power, Addison was appointed secretary to the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland, and also keeper of the records here. Shortly afterwards, Addison came and spent a year in Ireland, and he became acquainted with Jonathan Swift. So Addison may even have visited the little village of Glasnevin because Swift had friends here, the Delaney's. When Addison died in 1719, his old friend and colleague Thomas Tickell wrote a long eulogy that some people think is his best work. Five years later, in 1724, Tickell was himself appointed to a position in Ireland as secretary to the Lord's Justices here and he came and bought a small estate at Glasnevin by the banks of the Talca River, and here he built an elegant Georgian villa for his home. Around the same time, he planted this avenue of yew trees in memory of his great friend and benefactor. Thomas Tickell died in 1740. Fifty years later, his house and estate formed the core of Dublin's new botanic gardens, and his former home became the official residence for the garden's director, and it still is today. Joseph Addison never walked along this avenue. He died several years before his friend bought the estate here. Yet his name has long been associated with this corner of Glasnevin village, and the hotel just outside the entrance to the gardens is still called the Addison Lodge. Yellow Seven, the Dinosaur Tree. This tree, the Wallamai Pine, is one of the rarest and oldest trees in the world, and yet remarkably it's also at the cutting edge of saving both itself and the national park where it grows by acting as a conservation champion. The tree comes from Australia and it was only discovered in 1994 just 150 miles west of Sydney in the Wallamai National Park. It's now being sold commercially at a premium price with all the profits going to the park for conservation work. The Wallamai Pine was found by David Noble, a ranger in the national park and it has been named after him Wallemia nobilis. Botanists immediately recognised that here was a relative of the monkey puzzle tree, yet completely different. It matched fossils that are over 90 million years old, so its discovery was one of the most dramatic botanical news stories of recent decades. There are fewer than 100 trees left in the wild, and what's extraordinary is that they are all genetically identical. It seems that the population became so small in the past, possibly even down to a single individual, that all genetic diversity has been lost. 
the National Park has ensured that huge numbers of saplings have been grown from cuttings and these were sold in 2006, raising over a million Australian dollars. Tens of thousands have now been sold worldwide, thus ensuring that the Wallamai pine will live on. You can even buy one for your own garden, and in the future we'll probably regard this as quite a common tree in big parks and gardens. Here at Glasnevin we received about 30 plants in 2007, and we're now growing these in gardens around the country to see how well they survive at different locations. We've got several at our satellite gardens in Kilmacurra in County Wicklow, and they seem to like growing in Ireland's wet climate. Specimens in Glasnevin have already survived one of the coldest winters we've had for over 40 years, so we're hopeful that they'll thrive. Mature Wallamai pines often have a rather rugged appearance, with numerous stems, so each tree actually looks like a clump of trees. The bark is another amazing feature of these older trees being dark brown and bubbly, and looking for all the world like chocolate-covered Rice Krispies. You'll notice the very distinctive leaves, which are arranged in four rows along the branches, and the big rounded buds that are covered with white resin. At our next stop in the Arboretum, we'll see some more unusual trees. Yellow 8, the Arboretum The lawn in front of you is planted with several conifers and they form a nice green amphitheatre. Look at them now and see how they all look very different in their shape and colour. In fact, they're all the same species of tree. They're all Lawson cypress. In the wild, they would all look the same, but here in cultivation, they almost never do. Amazingly, no botanist has any idea why this is so. The forests of Oregon and California where the species grows are a uniform dark green. When sown in cultivation, however, seedlings of this species come up with endless variation, everything from varying crown shapes, tall, round, flat, to different growth rates, different leaf shapes and sizes, and most especially leaf colours. You'll make out everything here from dark to pale green to yellow to grey. Today there are literally hundreds of named cultivars of Lawson cypress, making it one of the most common and variable evergreens in suburban and city gardens. A cultivar is the term horticulturalists use for a cultivated variety. If a seedling looks promising, it can be mass-produced by taking cuttings. This is one of the great pleasures of gardening, that once an unusual plant arises, we can make identical copies by simply placing a small shoot into a pot of well-drained soil. In the case of woody evergreens, we do this in late summer. By the following spring, it will have rooted and can be planted out. The only danger from a Lawson cypress hedge is that it is fast-growing, adding more than 40 centimetres a year, and it can get very big. But it's still not as fast as the Leyland cypress, which can put on more than a metre a year, a tree that should definitely not be planted on a boundary. The route to our next stop at the herbarium will take you by the organic vegetable garden. This was begun in 2008 and it's now one of the most popular exhibits in the gardens. Take a look in as you pass and see what's in season. You might also spot the tall round tower on your right 
just outside our southern boundary wall. That is the Daniel O'Connell Monument in Glasnevin Cemetery, our next-door neighbour. Yellow Nine, a room full of plants. This is the National Herbarium, and it represents one of the most important archives of plant knowledge in Ireland, as well as from around the world. In this building we have plants collected from Australia, Africa and the Americas. Many of these specimens were the first ever to be returned to Europe. Scientific names and descriptions are based on dried plants that we still store here. It's a vital record of biodiversity from around the world. Because this is a centre for research, it's not normally open to the public. The word herbarium literally means a room for plants, and in this building are stored some three-quarters of a million dried pressed plants. The oldest date back to 1661, and so long as they're handled carefully, kept dry and out of the sun, they really should last almost forever. We know when each specimen was collected, where it was found and who collected it. A dried specimen is far better than any written record, photograph or drawing because we can examine it microscopically. We can take a dried flower off a 200-year-old specimen and when placed in hot water it not only reinflates to its original size but it can even release the original perfume. It's quite amazing. We constantly use the specimens here as a reference collection for identifying plant material collected in the wild but we also use it to preserve any unusual plants that we grow in the gardens for the very first time. There is a small exhibit in the very end window of the herbarium nearest to the visitor centre, displaying some of the material collected by two famous Irish botanists, Robert Lloyd Prager and Augustine Henry. And that's our next stop. Yellow Ten two famous Irish botanists. The National Herbarium is a scientific research centre and it's not usually open to the public. So we've put together this small display to give you some idea of the kind of material that's stored here. We've chosen samples that were collected by two famous Irish botanists, Robert Lloyd Prager, who did most of his botanising in Ireland, and Augustine Henry, who spent two decades on the other side of the world, collecting plants in remotest China. Augustine Henry was one of the world's great plant collectors, and also the father of Irish forestry. He was born in 1857 and grew up in County Tyrone. Although he's famous as a botanist, he trained as a medical doctor, and in 1881 he went to China to work as a doctor with the Imperial Customs Service. He spent years in remotest parts of China, where he became interested in the plants used in Chinese herbal medicine, and that led to a consuming passion for collecting all the plants he could. He sent literally thousands of dried specimens to Kew Gardens in London, as well as to our own national herbarium. They include over a thousand new species that European scientists had never seen before 
and many of these were named in his honour. In Glasnevin, we still grow many plants first discovered by Augustine Henry, and when he was Professor of Forestry in what is now University College Dublin, he was a regular visitor here. He was showered with international honours for his work. Robert Lloyd Prager was probably the greatest Irish naturalist of the 20th century. Internationally, botanists remember him for his detailed scientific work on two complex botanical groups, the Sempervivums and the Sedums, and for organising a major scientific survey of Clare Island off the west coast of Mayo, a survey that discovered 120 new species of plants and animals, mostly insects and tiny seaweeds. Prager was born in County Down in 1865 to a prosperous Unitarian family. His father's father had a Dutch and Czech background, and the surname Prager literally means native of Prague. Just as Augustine Henry trained as a medical man and not as a botanist, Prager trained as an engineer and later worked as a librarian at the National Library, but his real passion was botany and natural history. Prager wrote many books, including a popular account of his travels around Ireland called The Way That I Went, which is still in print. He was also the founding president of the heritage organisation Antashka. Prager and Henry are just two of the botanists who contributed material to the herbarium and to the botanic gardens here at Glasnevin, and whose work helped to improve our understanding of botany at home and abroad. Their collections form a permanent record and continue to provide us with valuable knowledge about the distribution of species, as well as allowing us to compare the material they saw as if it was yesterday. That's nearly the end of this tour, but we hope to see you here again soon. We've other guided tours of the gardens for you to enjoy. And there's always lots to see and discover at Glasnevin throughout the year, even in winter, and a busy programme of seasonal events and activities for every age. Ask at the Visitor Centre or check the event guide on the web at botanicgardens.ie. This was an Ingenious Ireland production written by the Gardens Director Matthew Jebb and me, Mary Mulvihill of Ingenious Ireland. The music you heard was... The Last Rose of Summer, recorded by the Thomas Moore Festival and performed by Mairead Hurley and soprano Aoife O'Sullivan. The tour was funded by the Department of Tourism, Culture and Sport under the Cultural Technology Grant Scheme in 2010. Sound production was by Twin Track Media. For more Ingenious Guided Tours and for the smartphone apps for the gardens, visit ingeniousireland.ie. We do hope you enjoyed this tour. Thank you and goodbye.